Good morning, faith family. If you have a Bible, would you please turn to John chapter 2. John chapter 2 will be our uh, text this morning. We started a series last week. Uh, we're calling All Sides of the Savior. Uh, the focus of this series over the next few weeks is to uh, look at the Gospels and to see the different sides of Jesus, what uh, makes up his uh, personhood, his personality, uh, his humanity. We want to know, what is Jesus like? What does he dislike? Uh, how does he react in certain situations? And, and this isn't just for information. Uh, it's, it's this. This is kind of what's driving us, is that in order for us to have a personal relationship with Jesus, we need to know the person of Jesus. And, and that's what all of this is about, is to know him more, to walk with him, to worship him, uh, to know Christ. And so we're going to look at the Gospels to really understand Jesus as he has been revealed uh, in the Scripture. So this morning, we're going to look at one of those sides of the Savior here in John chapter 2, beginning at verse 13. So if you are able to stand, would you please do so as a way of honoring the reading of God's Word. John chapter 2 and verse 13. It says, the Passover of the Jews was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple, he found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons and the money changers sitting there. Making a whip of cords, he drove them all out of the temple. With the sheep and oxen, he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. He told those who sold the pigeons, take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. His disciples remembered that it was written, Zeal, for your house will consume me. So the Jews said to him, What sign do you show us for doing these things? And Jesus answered them, Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said, It's taken 46 years to build this temple, and you will raise it up in three days? But he was speaking about the temple of his body. When, therefore, he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the Scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. This is God's word. Will you pray for me and with me? Let's ask God to come and teach us this morning. Father, thank you for the privilege of being uh, in this place. Uh, Thank you for the opportunity to gather and worship. Uh, God, I do ask that you would speak to us through your word. Uh, We want to know Jesus as he is revealed in Scripture. So help us this morning know him more. And I ask it in his name and for his glory. And all God's people said, amen. Amen. Please be seated. As he got closer to the city, his excitement grew more and more. It didn't matter that he traveled 850 miles on foot. It didn't matter that his small travel fund made him sleep in a lot of very difficult places. Uh, It it didn't matter that he even got sick along the way. In fact, he got so sick, he almost died. But none of that mattered now. All that was behind him as he stood on at the edge of the city. He was so excited, he literally knelt down and kissed the ground. He couldn't wait to go in and explore, to to visit all the sacred sites, to look at all the shrines, to interact with all the priests. He knew that it was going to be an experience he would never forget. But much to his disappointment, Martin Luther would soon realize that Rome was not anything like he thought it would be. 
It was October 1510 when Luther was sent to Rome. He thought it was going to be a place of piety, of of godliness, uh, of ministry, of worship. But that's not what he experienced. As he entered in, he described not a place of splendor, but a place of sewage. Not a place where one could stop and pray, but, but impatient priests that hurried him along. A place, he thought, where the clergy would be serving people were actually taking advantage of the poor. They were selling things called an indulgence, where just a little bit of money and you could free a family member from purgatory. They would say things like, don't you hear your family members screaming in anguish? You realize that you could free them for just a little bit of money. Luther even tried to free his own grandfather. But as he went step after step after step up the steps of the cathedral, his doubt in all of this grew more and more. Not his doubt in God, his doubt in Rome. And there he stood at the top of the steps looking out over what he saw as a circus and a man once full of anticipation was now filling up with anger. Why? Because what he saw wasn't right. He saw immorality and injustice and poverty and greed and manipulation and it bothered him at his core. Faith family, have you ever looked out on the world the way Luther looked out on that city and been deeply bothered at what you saw? Has that ever happened to you? Let me ask it this way. Has observing a fallen world ever made your temperature rise? Anyone? That there are just things in the world, things in life that you know are not right and it bothers you. Maybe you get angry when you see the elderly taken advantage of. Maybe you get angry when you see children who are abused. Maybe you get angry when you see life treated with very little value. Maybe you get angry when you watch a disease destroy a mind and a body. Maybe you get angry when you watch death take another life. The reality is, is that sometimes life in a fallen world will make your temperature rise. You say, oh, no, no, not me, pastor. I'm always happy. I don't ever get angry. The only emoji on my cell phone is the happy face. Well, good for you, sweetheart, all right? But, but I would suggest to you that there are things in this life of which the only proper response is righteous anger. Now, that word righteous is very important, okay? I'm not just talking about anger for anger's sake. I'm talking about a rightness, a righteous anger. I'm not not talking about petty things like parking spots or volume of worship, okay? Uh, Hypothetically. We're not talking about that. Nor am I, don't misunderstand me, I'm not suggesting acting, speaking, or behaving in a way that dishonors Christ. No, 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 no. I'm not talking about any of that. I'm simply saying there are things in the world, a fallen world, that will make your temperature rise. And that's exactly the side of the Savior we see in John chapter 2. Watch what happens here. Verse 13. 
It's the Passover of the Jews. Jesus goes up to Jerusalem. He goes in the temple and he finds those selling oxen and sheep and pigeons and the money changers that are sitting there. Now stop for just a minute before we dive into the details of this text. I need to say something that's a little technical, uh, but I know we have some nerds and you love this kind of stuff, okay? Sometimes people will take this passage and they'll say, uh, this is a contradiction in the Bible. The reason is, is because in John's gospel, this episode is placed at the beginning of Jesus's ministry. And in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, it's placed at the end of Jesus's ministry. But that's actually not a contradiction. There's two very possible things happening here. Number one, it could have happened twice. In fact, many scholars believe that this happened at the beginning of his ministry and at the end. So that's one very likely possibility. Another possibility is that you do realize that sometimes the gospel authors are not giving you chronology. They're not even intending to. You may assume that, but if you do, you're assuming something on the text that the text is not intending to give. Oftentimes, authors will put together stories that actually happened, that literally happened, but they're putting them together not for the sake of chronology, but for the sake of the topic of which all these stories teach. So whether John is taking one event and bringing it here to the front for topical reasons or whether it's an event that happened twice, in no way is a contradiction in Scripture. In fact, whichever episode you take, in all four accounts, it is Passover. It is the annual celebration of Israel's rescue from Egypt. I want you to get this in your mind. The place is packed. Jerusalem is swarming with people. There are hundreds of pilgrims from all around the Roman Empire that have come in. Hotels are booked. Homes are filled with out-of-town guests. There are tents that are surrounding the city where people are staying. In fact, it's estimated that two and a quarter million Jewish males had traveled in for the Passover. To give you just some perspective on that, um, the combined attendance uh, for all of the Minnesota State Fair last year was less than those here for Passover. It is filled with people. And the focus of everything is this massive temple. It's the center of it all. That's the focus of everybody's attention. Everybody wants their picture made by it. They want to send a postcard back to their family. You know, the little snow globe you shake up and put on your nightstand. They want to get one of those at the souvenir shop. Everything is focused on the temple. And if you're Jewish, you have to offer a sacrifice. Well, as you know, even today, where crowds go, so does commerce. So people have come in to uh, take advantage of this opportunity. And as you would walk in the temple, the first thing that you would encounter would be the money changers. And the reason this is the case is because the temple had its own currency. And for you to operate in the temple, you had to have this currency. So if you traveled in from out of town, uh, had a different kind of currency, you had to exchange and needless to say, the exchange rate was not in your favor. So people would get very frustrated at, at the exchange rate here. But you had to do it. And once you've done it, you go a little further. And now you've got to buy your sacrifice that you're going to offer. And you say, well, what if I brought my own sacrifice? You know, B-Y-O-S, bring your own sacrifice. Well, it didn't 
really work that way because if you were traveling from a great distance, you couldn't bring a sacrifice from that, that far. And even if you did, you had to go through TSA. You think our TSA is bad. They would inspect whatever sacrifice you brought uh, and from every angle. And if there was any spot, any blemish, they would not allow you to use it. You had to buy one of theirs. Now, they wouldn't tell you. They'd keep yours and sell it to the next guy. And as is typical, like if you go to a ball game, what cost $5 on the streets, now $75 uh, inside the temple. And so people, as you can imagine, are just absolutely frustrated with what's going on. There is all kinds of robbery, uh, complaining, theft, people being taken advantage of. And all of this right here is happening in a place of worship. I thought about how do I bring this into your world? Because I always want you to feel the text. I want you to be in this. So I, I thought, imagine this. Imagine you show up at Berean one Sunday morning and there's a line to get in the parking lot. And we make you pay for parking, 20 bucks, except we don't take U.S. currency. You got to have Berean coin. You know, those gold coins with this picture on it. You know what I'm talking about? It's called Manning money, right? And uh, that's the only way. And by the time you exchange for that money, you've actually paid $35 to park. And then when you get out of your car and you come in, we make you buy a ticket. Um, and not only that, uh, it's, it's a two drink minimum. Okay, and you can't bring your caribou or Starbucks in here. Oh, no, no, it has to be Berean coffee. And that two drink minimum is going to cost you another $20. By now, you're kind of a little frustrated. You kind of want to leave, but the law requires you to be here. And we have police parked right outside. So you're stuck. You decide you're going to go sit down and find your seat, but you realize you can't sit wherever you want to sit. Oh, no, no, no. Southerners, you're out in the commons. Norwegian women, you sit up in the balcony. Norwegian men, you can sit a little closer. Staff, you get the front row. Pastors, you get to go behind the curtain where there's a hot tub and Cuban cigars. <laughs> and by the time you get done with your Sunday morning experience at Berean, you have heard so much whispering and gossiping and manipulation. You've been cheated out of so much money that you feel like you've been at a circus, not a place of worship. That's what Jesus walks into. This is the temple. This is the place where God in the Old Testament meets with man. And this is what it's become? And look at the side of the Savior that comes out. Verse 15. And making a whip of cords, he drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and oxen. He poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. He, sold those, he told those who sold pigeons, take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. Jesus gets angry. As we would say in the South, he's got his knickers in a knot, okay? He is really, really mad. And this is not typically the side of the Savior that we often think about. We tend to like to think of Jesus as meek and mild, not angry. I was shocked in pre preparing for this message how many people I came across in reading different things and studying different things that actually tried to downplay this. They said, oh, Jesus wasn't really angry. He was just trying to get people's attention. Nonsense. 
He made a whip. I didn't say he brought a whip. I didn't say he had a whip. I said he intentionally sought out the ingredients to make a whip. And he didn't stop there. He turns over the tables. He drives, the text says, all the people out. Now look back at the temple. Those two big rectangles there, uh, this is where people would have been. And I've already told you about the crowds that would have been in town. There, there are people everywhere filling these courts. And Jesus runs them all out with their sheep and oxen with them. And then he looks at them in the eye and he says, you, those of you selling the pigeons, get this stuff out of here. Don't make my father's house a house of trade. Oh, he is not happy. He is anything but happy. There is a righteous anger in Jesus. Now, what does this teach us about him? Uh, Two things it's not, and one thing it is. First of all, it's very clear that Jesus is not a pacifist. Uh, People will often try to portray Jesus almost like he's a hippie. He's just about peace and love and unity, and he just like walks around speaking in a monotone voice. Hey, how you doing? Don't make my father's house a place of trade. I'm serious. Get out. Don't make me mad. Like that's like that's the Jesus you think about. He's just so boring. And stale, like he just spends his whole day rescuing kittens out of sycamore trees. You know, that, like that's just the, the essence of Jesus' ministry. Wrong. He's passionate. He's righteously angry. He rebukes. He says so himself that he divides families. And clearly the Bible teaches he hates cats. All right, I'm just kidding. I made that one up. That's my own Jesus, okay? Uh, the point is... Don't explain this side of Jesus away or you won't have the real one. He's not a pacifist. But secondly, we need to understand on the other side, he also doesn't have a short fuse. So he's not acting here like the Incredible Hulk, where one minute everything's normal and the next minute he's just going off on people. You know, he's having a bad day, got up on the wrong side of the bed and just decided to throw a temple tantrum. That's good. Come on. That's good, right? Okay, good. Dad joke, right? It's not just that Jesus is having a bad day, like some of us have a bad day, and just loses it, okay? That's not Jesus. There's something else going on here. Why is he responding this way? What's going on? Let's let the text tell us. Good idea? Verse 17. His disciples remembered... That it was written, this is going back to the Psalms, zeal for your house will consume me. That phrase literally means uh, to eat you up. Zeal for your house, that is for God's house, will consume me. Here's what's going on in Jesus. Do you want to know what's going on in Jesus? What is bringing this side of the Savior out? It's this. He is zealous He is passionate for the things of God. 
And I want to take it one step further, okay? Because you need to see that wrapped up in this righteous anger of Jesus is actually a real love for you. Are you with me? Jesus cares passionately about you having relationship with God. It's his whole mission. The reason why he's here is so that man and God would be reconciled together. And so when he sees the temple that has been set aside for interaction with God, with a focus on God, and now all of a sudden there have become barriers of people being able to worship God, he gets righteously angry. Because listen, faith family, there is nothing more important in all of life than your communion with God. And so if Jesus sees things in your life that's hindering that, he loves you so much to righteously come in and turn your tables upside down. Now, as I thought about what Jesus is doing here and why he's responding this way, I thought, what are the lessons for us to learn? Because I wonder what Jesus would say if he walked into Berean, if he walked into your heart, uh, what would he see? And so I want to give you four quick implications or four things for us to really think about in terms of what makes Jesus righteously angry in our life and in our worship. And and I've got four different categories I want to speak to. Number one, I want to say a word to Christian leaders. Number two, I want to say a word to Christian churches, specifically this one. Thirdly, I want to say a word to Christians. And lastly, I want to say something to everybody. You with me? First, you want to know what gets Jesus fired up? Let me say something to Christian leaders. Jesus gets righteously angry when desire for gain replaces desire for God. Jesus cannot stand it when Christian leaders, when leaders here in the temple make the focus about their profit rather than on God. You're supposed to be celebrating the Passover, not in this for profit. Do you realize what your calling is about? Do you realize what this is ultimately about? It's not about building your platform. It's not about building your wallet. It's not about making a name for yourself. It's about helping people connect with God. And when you turn it into something else, Jesus gets eaten up by that. That's a word to me. That's a word to our pastors. That's a word to Christian leaders everywhere. When you make ministry about profit rather than connecting people with God, Jesus wants to turn your tables over. Let me show you how he does it with the Pharisees. Look at what he says in Matthew 23, 25. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you clean the outside of the cup and the plate, but inside you're full of greed and self-indulgence. Jesus cannot stand, listen, when specifically Christian leaders mask their greed with a form of godliness. 
And there are many examples of which I will not name names. The ministry is about serving people that they might be connected with God. That's why you're here. Amen? Okay. Now let me say a word to the church. Specifically this church. What gets Jesus fired up, man, I mean gets righteously angry, is when ministry inside is only for those on the inside. When ministry inside, because this is happening on the inside of the temple, is only for those on the inside. Here's where I take this. You kind of need to go to the other gospel accounts to get it because Jesus uses this phrase when he says, you have turned my father's house, which is a house of prayer into a den of robbers. Now, don't think that the point is just prayer. It's actually bigger than that because that quote, are you with me, is a quote from Isaiah 56 where it says God's house is to be a house of prayer, listen, for all peoples. Those rectangles that we showed you in that picture, that was called the Gentile court. It's where those who were not Jewish, outsiders, anybody from anywhere could come in and pray. All were welcome to enter in there. The problem is they'd become so consumed with commerce and making a profit that guess what? They expanded their ministries out. After all, they're offering a service, wink, wink, into the Gentile courts and now the outsiders can't come in. You say, what does that have to do with us as a church? Nothing gets Jesus more angry than when a church forgets the mission. You may get me fired up. I might just turn a chair over. That's all I'm strong enough to do, all right? (laughs) Brian, please do not forget that we don't exist to be a holy huddle and a little fellowship of insiders where we find our neat little groups to the point that that actually becomes a hindrance to outsiders who are trying to come in and understand how they can have a relationship with God. Our mission is make, to make disciples of all nations, not to play little comfortable church until we go be with Jesus. When ministry inside becomes only for those on the inside... Jesus wants to turn your tables over. Thirdly, let me say a word to Christians. Are you ready for this? When, this is what gets Jesus fired up, when motions of worship replace the meaning of worship. When the motions of worship replace the meaning of worship. See, here's the idea. Uh, The temple is full of all kinds of activity. There's lots of people. There's lots of programs. There's lots of sacrificing going on. But here's what we're going to see in the text. Jesus, watch. Jesus sees past all that and knows what's actually going on in the heart. There's a lot of commotion. There's a lot of activity. There's a lot of religious stuff going on. But Jesus knows what's actually going on in the heart. Look at this in verse 23. 
Now, when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. But Jesus, on his part, did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people. And he needed no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in man. Jesus can look right through all your religious activity. And you got to understand that this is what Jesus came to do. Come on, come on. Mm, I wish I could just like sit down and let's just chat for a minute. Jesus died on the cross, not so that you could have religious activity on Sunday morning. He died on the cross and rose from the grave so that you could have relationship with God. So when you just come in here week after week, week after week, and you do your songs, and you say your prayers, and you you get your warm fuzzies because you were at church, and you can use that during the week if something goes wrong while I went to church last, and all it is is a religious routine. Jesus wants more for you than that. Jesus died so that you could have more than that. And if that's your experience, he wants to turn your tables over. Because he came and died that you could enter in, not to a church, but to God. I thought about a story I read one time about a businessman on a flight. He received his in-flight meal and he opened it up and sure enough, inside was a roach. And all God's people said, ugh, all right? It's protein, right? It's something. And obviously, he was furious at this. He wrote a letter to the airlines just uh, expressing his anger. They wrote back, shockingly, a very gracious letter. We are so sorry for this. It'll never happen again. We've cleaned uh, the plane from top to bottom. Uh, Just trust me, this will never happen again. Continue to fly with us. And he was encouraged by the letter until he saw something on the back. There was like a little sticky note attached. And so he flipped it over, and what he saw was a a post-it note that read, send this man the standard roach letter. (laughs) Now you think about that. Okay, maybe don't think about that too much, okay? But here's the idea. The letter sounded good. It sure used all the right words. For a moment, it even felt like it was sincere. The truth is, it was nothing more than a routine action filled with meaningless words. Berean, let that not describe our worship. Amen? Oh, Jesus wants to turn the tables over when all you're doing is going through the motions. Why? Because he wants more for you. Lastly, this is to everybody. This is to everybody. Jesus gets fired up when symbols overshadow the Savior. When symbols overshadow the Savior. Watch the exchange, the dialogue that takes place beginning at verse 18. Jesus says something that gets to the heart of it all. The Jews said to him, what sign do you show us for doing these things? And Jesus answered them, destroy this temple, and in three days I'll raise it up. The Jews then said, what? It's taken 46 years to build this temple. You're going to raise it up in three days? 
but he was speaking about the temple of his body. You see, Jesus has come to replace the temple. This symbol that has existed for quite some time was always pointing you to a savior. And here's what Jesus is saying. Here's what Jesus is teaching. And it is profound and it is very important for us to understand. Watch. Notice it on the screen. Sometimes you can miss the temple for the temple. You can become so absorbed in the symbols, so absorbed in the forms, so absorbed in those things that you miss that all of these things are actually pointing you to a person. And it breaks my heart to think that there are some of you here and yeah, you've got a cross around your neck and you've got a Bible in your lap and you're at a church building and you've got your Sunday clothes on and you've got all the symbols, but you don't have a savior. What a awful thing it would be to miss the savior for all the symbols. And I believe that there are some of you here today and you're not a Christian. You have the symbols, you have all this down pat, but they're all substitute for something real. You know, like an actual person. And that's what Jesus is teaching. Don't you understand? I have come to replace the temple. I'm not talking about the temple that uh, was built in 46 years or whatever. I'm talking about the temple that they crucified on a cross and three days later walked out of a grave. And because of that temple, that is the person of Jesus Christ, you can have a relationship with God. Do you? Do you? Don't miss the symbols. Don't miss the Savior for all the symbols. So I wonder this morning, if Jesus walked in here, if Jesus walked into the temple of your heart, what would he see? Would he see a desire for gain or desire for God? Would he see um, a focus on self or would he see a focus on ministry to others? Would he see just going through the normal motions or would he see somebody that really wants to worship God? Would he see somebody that has all the substitutes but is yet to find a savior? Oh, that Jesus, by his grace, would turn our tables over so that this might be real, that we might truly know God. It's the final scene in C.S. Lewis's Voyage of the Dawn Treader. Lucy and her friends are sailing on the sea and they come close to the shore. They, they notice off in the distance there's this large grassy area and this white spot. And as they get closer, they realize that that white spot is actually a lamb cooking a meal on the shore. They get to the shore and they eat with this lamb. They enjoy fellowship with this lamb. But they begin asking questions about the land of Aslan, the great lion. And as they ask these questions, something amazing starts to happen to the lamb. 
Here's how Lewis records it. He says, His snowy white, flushed to gold, and his size changed. It was Aslan himself, towering above them and scattering the light with his mane. It was Lewis's way of showing what the Bible teaches us. That is, Jesus is not just a lamb. Jesus is a lion. He is not just gentle and meek. He is passionate. And do you want to know what he's passionate about? He's passionate that you would know God. And all God's people said, amen. Amen. Will you pray with me? Father, we thank you for... um, this time this morning to study your word. Thank you for revealing this side of our Savior. Oh, let us not water down or explain away the passion that Jesus has to want to see men and women, boys and girls, have a relationship with God. And anything that gets in the way of that, any barrier that stops that, brings out a righteous anger. Because it is a hindrance to the very ministry that Jesus came to do. And so we ask you, God, that you would reveal in our hearts and even in our church those things that are hindrances to the gospel, hindrances to being able to really know you and worship you. I pray that based on what we've looked at in this passage, that you would speak to us this morning and reveal with clarity uh, what is true in our life. If there's tables that need to be turned over, And though while that is righteously angry, there is a intimate love behind that. Of a Jesus who cares so much for us that he wants more for us. He wants God for us. So God, we pray that you'd speak to us in that. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.